Welcome to another edition of the Long Gospel Devotional. My name is Eric Sorensen, pastor at Hillside Church, as well as a contributor to 1517. In all sorts of ways, week in and week out, we gather each Tuesday to look at God's two words from all of the scriptures, whether it be the Old Testament or the Psalms or the epistles or whatever the case may be from the lectionary text for each and every uh, Sunday. And this week we're going to be looking once again at the epistle text as we've done the last uh, few weeks in the epistle of James, which, well, it's actually the very end of James. And what it says to us is frankly very encouraging. Uh, yes, it, it does present to us the reality of what the law points out to us. And yet it might be, um, in some sense, the most gospely part of the epistle to James as he closes out his letter. So let's go ahead and bring up that uh, presentation and talk about it a little. If I could sum up what this is really all about, this passage, it's about, in, in a strange way, the power of dependence in the Christian's life. Uh, that's the strand or the string that I see tying all the different elements that James mentions at his closing together. And I say, and I've said for a long, long time, that our biggest problem as human beings is our need or our feeling that we need to be independent, that we need to take care of it ourselves. That that phrase that we start saying as soon as we can talk as children, well, that never really goes away in our hearts. There's always something inside of us that says, I can do it myself. And the reality is, in the Christian life, that's the fundamental opposite of what we ought to be saying. In fact, we ought to be saying each and every day, each and every day I cannot do it myself. I need the Lord. I need others. I, by myself, will just mess things up. Now, of course, the reason that's hard for us is because, well, there in our own lives, in our in our uh, in the rest of our lives, independence uh, can have its good things. It can have its virtues. I mean, those of us who raise children—I've got three boys myself have hopes as they're being raised that they will be able to be independent and take care of themselves and get their own jobs and provide for their own families. That's all true. But when we apply that to our spiritual lives, that's when we get into trouble. So let's see how James shows us the power of dependence. First of all, he points out that it's healthy for us to be dependent when we're suffering. He says simply in verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Well, what is prayer if not an act of dependence? It is literally an acknowledgement just by doing the thing, no matter what you say. It is an acknowledgement that, in fact, you can't do it yourself. He continues on in the same verse in 513b. He says, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Again, what is praise but also acknowledging that what you have is not something that you got yourself. You're giving credit to God for whatever it is, in this case, that would cause you to be cheerful. In the picture I, I picked here, um, just beneath me is a picture of one of the people that leads worship at the church I serve, Jason Spencer. And the reason I chose it is because if there's anything the man exudes when 
we are worshiping together, it is indeed cheerfulness. It is a joy in being able to celebrate the things of God. And then, of course, James also acknowledges dependence when we're sick. Verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Again, what is more dependent than calling someone else? In this case, the elders and asking them to pray for you, asking them to help you. In this case, to anoint them with oil. Indeed, this is a practice that the church has done throughout its history. If in my particular tradition, if a congregant asked me to come and pray for them and anoint them with oil, uh, which would be typically olive oil of some kind, then we will do that and we will pray for them to be healed if they are suffering from a sickness. All that said, we do have to acknowledge that the oil here also has a symbolic meaning as we think about the Old Testament and we think about what oil was meant to do. It was a symbol of, well, the Holy Spirit. It was a symbol of the Holy Spirit coming upon someone. And this is important, I think, for understanding what James is going to go on to say in the passage. Because right after this, well, he brings up, oh, a, a verse that it's a little strange. He says in verse 15, And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now let's look at that first part and the reason why I say it might sound a little troubling or a little confusing. If you were just to read this verse in isolation, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. Well, then you might be prone to thinking that James is sort of making a, a blanket promise that if one prays in faith, then indeed they'll get better. But of course, the, the reality is the problem is all of us die. All of us will at one point or another not get better unless, of course, the Lord returns. But before that, everyone will die. Does that mean that their prayers didn't have enough faith? Does that mean the elders didn't have enough faith? Well, of course, some would say that, and they're dead wrong. No, that's not at all what James is saying here. Remember, we always have to take a verse in its context. It could be that, in fact, he's saying, in general, that there is a general sense of praying in faith can, indeed, um, be the means by which God delivers physical healing to, to people. That could be what he's talking about here. But, but when I look at the passage, I look at this verse, and I think about the symbolism of anointing with oil being uh, balmed by the Holy Spirit, and I think about the verse right, or the words right after this, connecting this kind of raising up that is promised with, well, the forgiveness of sins, I can't help but think that James is talking not so much or not just about physical healing. He's not promising that we're all going to be physical, physically healed if we just have enough faith. But indeed, there is a promise that is true that if we pray in faith for spiritual healing, that indeed is a guarantee that we'll be raised up and forgiven of all of our sins. 
And so I would say we need to step away from interpreting this as having anything to do with sort of prosperity teaching or faith healing. I don't think that's James' point. I think James' point in this whole passage, frankly, is really about the spiritual care of people. Now, I could go on and on uh, doing more exegesis of this passage to try and prove my point, but I think you get it. I think you understand that what I'm saying is James is more concerned about us being dependent for spiritual healing in our lives, even if there is an application for physical healing in our lives. All right, so let's move on to dependence for forgiveness. Uh, that, that certainly is shown throughout the passage as well. Look at what he says in verse 16 through 18. He says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Folks, there might be nothing that suggests dependence and, frankly, vulnerability more than confessing our sins to one another. There's a high degree of trust there. There's a high degree of dependence that the person we're confessing to, well, number one, is trustworthy, and number two, will actually deliver the goods to us, will actually deliver the forgiveness of sins that inevitably brings the healing we all need. And I want to point out one other thing about this word from verse 16, and that is, well, you know, we tend to think about confession, some of us, if we have certain backgrounds, of going to a confessional booth. Now, that's not inherently problematic at all. One can do that. In fact, in certain Protestant traditions, that is not unusual. That, that would be fairly normal. But the reality is, James says, we don't just have to go to a pastor to confess our sins in order to get absolution. No, he says, we can do it with one another. We can confess to one another, whoever one another is in the body of Christ. And to one another, we can declare the forgiveness of sins that brings healing and restoration. He continues as he talks about this dependence to forgive and to be forgiving. He says in verse 16 at the end, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might rain, might not rain. And for three and a half years, three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. The example he gives of Elijah is of a, a man who is persistently praying. In this case, if we apply this to the overall context here, this is talking about somebody that's persistently praying for God to bring healing and forgiveness to somebody that needs it, for God to bring true healing and restoration to somebody that needs it. I can't help but think of, of course, the parable of the persistent widow, which the painting here depicts, a story about a woman who goes, in that case, to an unjust judge, it says, who doesn't really care about her plight, but just is so persistent, refusing to give up to get justice for her cause, that eventually the unjust judge gives in and grants her her wish. There's a sense in which we are being called here to be stubborn in our desire to see other people healed and restored and forgiven. 
to not give up in our desire to see that happen. I can't help but think of my old friend, Dan Allen. He was a youth leader at my uh, my church when I was a youth group kid, right after I had first really encountered the gospel and become uh, a Christian. And part of that youth group each week is we'd break off into little prayer groups and we give our prayer requests. And usually most of them were pretty typical of high schoolers, you know, and uh, nothing too flashy. But Dan had a prayer each week, each week. And it always was the same one. Pray for my brother that he might become a Christian. Each and every week, same prayer. Pray for my brother that he might become a Christian. Pray for my brother that he might become a Christian. And after a while, being a young Christian myself, I thought, you know, I think God's got the memo. I think God understands that you want your brother to become a Christian. And yet, Dan persisted. And then one day, we gather for prayer, and Dan suddenly says, pray for my brother. Last week, he became a Christian. Pray that God would guide his steps moving forward. And it was just a wonderful example to me of this insistence, this persistence to keep on praying and keep on insisting on forgiveness, getting the final word before the throne of God. It's the sense of interceding, as James alludes to, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. You in and of yourself are not righteous, but through Jesus Christ, you've been declared as righteous as you can possibly be because you've been imputed with his righteousness. So that means your prayer, folks, as Christians, is powerful. Yes, that is what James is alluding to here. And then let's finally go to James talking about the dependence needed to pursue others like the good shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep to go after the one. James concludes his letter with an exhortation of sorts for us to see ourselves in that same light. Look at what he says. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, so you've got this picture of someone wandering away and then someone going after the wanderer, let him know if he brings him back that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. I love that picture. What a wonderful end to the letter. This promise, this encouragement that, that if we are able to bring someone back into, the, into uh, the belief that their sins are forgiven on account of Christ. That God uses us as a means by which to bring such a message to the wandering sinner that it will cover a multitude of sins, that it will cover all their sins. And when I hear that word cover, again, I can't help but think. Can't help but think of the picture we get in the prodigal son, of the father running out to his son and insisting that he be robed with the royal robes of the family. Indeed, you, Christian, have already been given that robe in Jesus Christ. You have been covered in his righteousness, clothed, Paul says in Galatians, in his righteousness at your baptism. And indeed, 
he continues his work of doing that. Yes, he continues his work of bringing that robe to others that have wandered away that need to get out of the filthy rags that they've been carrying and instead be imputed with Jesus's perfection on their account. And yet he does it through imperfect sinners like us. He does it through people being dependent on him, people willing to ask for help, people like you and I, all too imperfect, and yet people that God delights in using. Well, that's it for today. I pray that you've been blessed by this brief time looking at the end of James, and I look forward to seeing you next Tuesday. God bless.